Hi, Curious Objects listeners. We've got a great show coming up for you today with Thomas Jane. But first, I want to give you a quick sneak peek of another podcast that I think you'll love called The Object. This is an award-winning podcast from the Minneapolis Institute of Art. They tell stories of art and artists throughout history with style and wit. You can hear new episodes of The Object every month. And stay tuned at the end of this episode to hear a little bit of The Object, where they dig into a story of mystery and discovery around the famous bronze horses on St. Mark's Basilica in Venice. This episode is also brought to you by the Decorative Arts Trust, a nonprofit organization that promotes and fosters the appreciation and study of the arts through visual and in-person programs and grant making. For more information, visit decorativeartstrust.org. Hello, and welcome to Curious Objects, brought to you by the magazine Antiques. I'm Ben Miller. Um, We spend a lot of time on this program talking about old things, um, where they came from, why they are the way they are. Uh, We've spent a lot less time talking about what you actually do with them right here, right now. Now, you've heard me preach about using antiques rather than letting them languish in the storage closet because they're too precious. Well, my guest today is Thomas Jane. And he is an expert in how to do just that, to take old things and deep knowledge about them and put it into practice. Um, In other words, he is an interior designer. He is the namesake of Jane Design Studios and the author of a really beautiful book from Monticelli Press called Classical Principles for Modern Design, Lessons from Edith Wharton and Ogden Codman's The Decoration of Houses. And if you're not already familiar with Thomas and his work, um, the first thing to be aware of is just how seriously he is committed to understanding decorative arts uh, and design history uh, and fitting his work into the contexts and frameworks established by centuries of study and tradition, um, while at the same time not being mindlessly chained to them. His resume includes Winterthur, Historic Deerfield, uh, and the Getty. Um, he is really my kind of designer, and uh, to be honest, if you're listening to this show, he is probably your kind of designer too. Thomas Jane, welcome to Curious Objects. Thank you very much for having me. I I, I never thought of myself as an antiques user, but you know you have to have a, a substance that you uh, use. I think antiques is a good one. I, I advertise antiques like I advertise patent medicine. It's good for your health. It might contain a little alcohol, <laughs> and um, It'll make you happy. <laughs> Not to mention uh, green. Very environmentally green, conscious. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, okay, we, we have a lot to talk about today. Um, and we're going to take a, a deep dive into the world of uh, home design and decoration over the last hundred years. Um, and, and specifically at the roles that antiques have played in that story. Um, but I want to start by just clarifying one thing. You talk a lot about historical inspiration. Um, Your book is called Classical Principles of Modern Design. You incorporate historical objects into the design work that you do. Um, But you're generally speaking, you're not doing what one would describe as reproductions. Um, So how how would you describe your approach? Meaning what we call the period room where you try to make a house or a room completely furnished with antiques often of the same date. Exactly. Um, it, was, it, was, it was a decorating goal in the 20th century um, by many collectors from, say, Jane Reitzman, when she did, she collected French furniture for her own house and then for, of course, the Metropolitan Museum or even Henry Francis DuPont, where 
he tried to make a room full, of, you know, make rooms full of 18th century furniture to be instructional. All these things are the same date, and look how they interrelate. And collectors, and to some degree, just private individuals, would ascribe to the same goals. There was the that great interest in um, colonial furniture engendered by Williamsburg and their famous craft house, where they sold probably a million pieces of reproduction early American furniture for post-World War II houses. Um, And that was a decorating standard or ideal. Um, Today, I think that we understand that it it was rare historically to have a room that was all one date, that um, most people had things from different times and generation to furnish their house because furniture was expensive and there was also sentiment and only only the very very rich would buy all new furniture if you will mm-hmm. or 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 poor people who would buy all new furniture of poor quality and have it would have to be replaced often so we've really really at a mark now where we mix up old and new um both for appearance and availability and um I guess taste. Yeah. I do believe that um, you can't make a great, for today, I don't think it's possible to make a room that is successful, that doesn't have something from our own time and generation, but also something that's old. I think the duality really makes a successful interior, um, the mixture of the two. And you can really see that in, in the images uh, of your work in your book. Uh, Of course, you know, on your, uh, website and Instagram. Um, anyone who takes a look can pretty clearly see the way that you play with uh, combinations of old and new. Um, and and we'll get to that uh, topic specifically a little bit later. Um, but really, you know, I want to poke your brain a little and um, get into the uh, the history aspect of this and um, how people of past generations have uh, approached the art of designing interiors and um, uh, you know how those approaches have changed over time. Um, and, and what we really are going to focus on today is the last hundred years. But, you know, as your book is called Classical Principles of Modern Design, um, can you give us a just a quick uh, overview, starting with the classical period, if we think about uh, ancient Greek and Roman spaces, and uh, sort of tell us about the philosophy of interior design that um, that you'd associate with that with that period, and then sort of bring us up uh, closer to um, to the present day. This is just going to be a whirlwind tour, so uh, you know, buckle your seatbelt. I always like to point out that the Greeks were incorporating Egyptian things into their interiors and and their buildings. And the Romans were definitely uh, par- uh, sampling ancient Greece. And that old, whole Greco-Roman-Egyptian tradition um, was then adopted, readapted during the Renaissance and delivered to the 18th century. Um, and there was invention along the way, but the, the elements largely remained the same until the 20th century and the advent of modernism. Mm-hmm. And then there was a demarcation between 
things that were machine-like or made by the machine and the things that were organic. And generally, those are things that were organic belong to the ancient tradition of, of classicism. Yeah, and maybe the, the sort of core story um, to, to start with today has to do with a shift that happens um, you know, around 120 years ago um, with the advent of what we think of as the Gilded Age. And, and I wanted to jump sort of in our uh, very, very brief survey of uh, interior design history. I want to jump s- straight to uh, one of the sort of uh, closing chapters, which is to say uh, the year 1897. Um, and that, that, that's the year in which uh, Edith Wharton and Ogden Codman published their guidebook, uh, The Decoration of Houses, um, about which you, know, you are uh, sort of one of the leading thinkers. Um, but, but, you know, something was really changing in that period around the end of the 19th and into the early 20th century. Um, and, and there was a new uh, formality or formalism of thinking about um, inhabiting spaces. Um, and, and one of the things they were trying to do was really, well, I think you could describe the book as a kind of a corrective against Victorianism. Um, or, or fussiness, general fussiness. Um, yes. I mean, what? Yeah. So, what? What were they responding to or rebelling against in that book? I mean, the greatest example for me is Edith Wharton's parents' house. She was, she was a Jones, as in, as in keeping up with the Joneses, and her parents lived in a house on the, in the. I think it was on Twenty Third Street, or it was in the, the West Thirties. Um, and, and when you look at the pictures, you'll see it's it's just it's full on high Victorian taste mm-hmm. with with portieres and swags and swags of swags of silk damask crowded with furniture. It was you know pretty much everything that you would think of in the Gilded Age in full excess. And um, Edith Wharton. Pretty much that she, you know, you often rebel against your parents' taste, and certainly this was a case where she, she, she called out that taste as being overwrought, and she, she and Odd and Common both argued that the reason was is that architects had given up on interior decoration and interior spaces; they would do exteriors, but then they would allow the interiors to be decorated by upholsterers and furniture merchants. Um, and they became crowded and confused. Mm. And she was, they were both happy that um, in, in the late in the 1890s that people were starting to look at um, historic buildings and rooms as models for better results. Mm-hmm. And they were very enthusiastic about the future because they said the best models were being selected and therefore the, um, the best results were happening. Uh, and they, in their argument, they pointed out all the great public buildings that were going up, like the New York Public Library, the um, the uh, Great Ex- Chicago Exposition, were all in, you know, indicators of of how classical models were being applied to use in America that eschewed the you know larded on Victorian aesthetic. Yeah. Well, and so, so it's interesting that, I mean, this is happening during a period of time that we call the Gilded Age, 
um, literally named after its its excesses and inequalities. So were the ideas that Wharton and Codman were disseminating, were those applicable uh, outside of the great houses of Fifth Avenue and Newport and such? Yes. Um, th- they felt that even the simplest houses could um, have a classical idiom about them. And, and they pointed out that even the simplest carpenter's um, manual would show how to make a cornice or a crown molding and a baseboard, which would emulate a column. So they, they said that it could be done with great simplicity, but the, the f- effect um, was universal. So they really felt that a great um, room was had those classical details, and then it was additive after that. And they also felt that um, furniture had to function, that functionality was the key part of a room. It, you didn't just put furniture in to fill space. You, you put used furniture um, for... Um, the purpose of the room. So, I mean, this it, it's interesting. When we first started, you and I talking about this subject, you uh, brought up a term that I don't know if you coined this or not, but I, I really like the notion, which is uh, democratic connoisseurship. Um, so, you know, I want to get you to, to talk a little about that and tell us what you mean by it. And, and in the context of this, you know, Gilded Age, um, uh, you know, aesthetic moment. Um, if you think about what you might call a typical American middle-class home in 1900-1910, you know, the styles that they were embracing, to what extent were those um, imitative of the, the wealthy homes they were seeing? And, and to what extent was there, was there sort of a separate middle-class aesthetic versus, you know, as standing in opposition to the the sort of um, one percenter gilded age aesthetic are are those different things? Uh-huh. Well, I think every everything, every man made object reflects the time and generation, so it, it's all in the same mix. But and to and every community had grand mansions that were on the pattern of Newport, if not the same size. I always think of Newport as being the archetype of Gilded Age, Gilded Age mansions, but you know, Fifth Avenue, San Francisco, all the big American cities had neighborhoods with palace-like houses. Um, and then there were middle-class neighborhoods that that might not have as the same, you know, great porticos and columns, but had a lot of the same essential parts. I think. Everyone, the aspiration was to have a front hall and a living room and a dining room. And if you could afford it, you had a bedroom with a sitting room. And th- th- those were the key things. And and sometimes Americans just wanted really big bedrooms without sitting rooms, but Edith Wharton thought that was better if you had a sitting room. Hmm. So th- I think that there was a universal desire to have certain elements um, and that and that they be classically parlayed um, whether it be uh, 
let's say, what are, you know, the, the Vanderbilt Mansion, which was pretty excessive to, um, you know, a regular house on a regular street and small town. I'm not really answering your question. Um, no, I mean, that, that that's driving in the direction. I mean, I think sort of, you know, if the focal point of the history we're trying to tell today has to do with the objects being used in these houses, you know, one of the key differences between a Fifth Avenue mansion and a middle-class American home is the types of objects that uh, their inhabitants could afford to to put in them. So, you know, in Newport and Fifth Avenue and the great San Francisco homes, you know, these were homes that were uh, piled high with the finest um, English and, and French furniture, Italian paintings, you name it. Um, right. But, you know, what about uh, American antiques? You know, people are maybe for the first time starting to think seriously about collecting uh Americana, um, as we would call it today, uh, you, sure. you know, you might start to see some, even some of these early reproductions of, um, or reproductions of early American pieces, but what, you know, was colonial American furniture seen by, by 1910 as something that you might want to have in your home? Sure. So th- that's, that's a whole timeline. The interest in Americana, American furniture, um, that's that that's very telling. American furniture and Americana in in our interiors um starts pretty early when people start keeping relics that are associated with the early period. And it could be a chest that was believed to come over on the Mayflower or a piece of silver associated with the Patriot and the American Revolution. And and they were so it was and they were freestanding. So you might have an early American chair in your French drawing room to prove that you had this early American connection. Eventually, um, it became more embracing where all old furniture, all American furniture um, represented a time and period and people collected it um, partly out of a sense of history, but it also became part of the American aesthetic. And I think that's where um, artists started collecting Americana for its, you know, simplicity of line and and um, and its style. And it had a, it sort of worked well with a modern aesthetic, mm. uh, especially Shaker furniture and simpler 18th century furniture um, was embraced by the artistic community, and that's where Americana leaves being a relic just being interesting as relics to being an, an interior design aesthetic. And at that point, there's this whole period called the colonial revival where people start decorating their houses in a colonial taste. Um, and and lots and lots of furniture is made that's called colonial. Um, and that that tradition really hasn't stopped. Yeah. Well, and so how does, um, if we think about the evolution of, of architectural styles, you know, how does that play into um, taste for furniture specifically? You know, I mean, like by the 1920s, we're already 
hearing from Le Corbusier about uh, open floor plans and spacious windows. And that's not, you know, you don't necessarily, if you have a window covering your whole wall, it doesn't leave a whole lot of room for sideboards and, and china hutches. Um, you know, does, does that have an influence on how people are, are thinking about their spaces? I mean, there, there was the modernism wasn't widely like, incorporated in American house, homes until after the Second War, and I think most people wanted formal rooms until then. Um, and they they wanted a dining room with a sideboard and a dining t- dining table that would seat twelve and um, a parlor or a reception room that was formal and. Really, after the war, the open plan and modern furniture um, took a role, and you had basically two dueling tastes. You had sort of modern ranch houses or colonial, you know, Cape Cod type houses were being built almost an equal number. So I think that's the bifurcation, um, and the modern houses would have Scandinavian furniture and the colonial houses would have reproduction colonial furniture. And occasionally there'd be a mix-up, but um, not very often. Yeah. Well, and, and there's there are other things happening at this time, too, um, in, in terms of, um, you know, means of production. So, you know, in a previous episode, I, I spoke with Glenn Adamson uh, about his book, um, Craft in American History, and he describes this curious phenomenon when you know, there's sort of a period when mass manufacturing hasn't quite dominated the economy for, for decorative arts, but furniture makers are starting to produce objects in multiples um, and sometimes many multiples. And then eventually there's this shift where bespoke one-of-a-kind objects become the exception um, rather than the rule in American homes. So... You know, and I, I think it's hard to put an exact date on when that happens. But what would you say, and just sort of as a general impression, what does that shift uh, do to the the practice of interior design? Well, I, you can certainly see it today, where modern furniture is reproduced in great numbers. You have the phenomenon of design within, within reach, where you can go in and pick out a whole house full of furniture. It's all modern. And it all looks good in in, in combination, um, and, and and that really that really that's really the market right now. And then the other competitor is things like restoration hardware. If you want like a soft kind of if you want soft furniture that's more um, it's not as, not as modern apparently more comfortable. So that eclipses pretty much all the um, bench-made or personally-made things, except for people who are well-to-do or have a very strong interest in craft. So it's hard to, re- hard to refute. That's one thing good about antiques, though. If you do decide, you know, if you are obligated or you do um, decide to rely on retail sources just introducing you know a few old things can immediately add personality and contrast and i I think that that 
that's happening more and more where you see interiors with a few old things at least just to offset the repetitiveness of what's being manufactured. Certainly restoration hardware always interjects a few seemingly old things into their interiors in order to give that quality. Yeah. Well, so that's interesting. I wonder to what extent restoration hardware and and that sort of uh, approach, is that reacting? I mean, I I guess every every, uh, aesthetic period is in a sense reacting to what preceded it. But there's this um, generation I think of as being roughly between the end of World War II and the Vietnam War, which um, just feels to me like a low point in in home design, at least in America. And, and I think of shag carpeting and tassels and mustard yellow tiles. Uh, am I missing something or were, were there actually, um, you know, interesting ideas being explored in that period? Were there good designers? Um, so what, what dates are you saying again? That let's say between what about... The, what's the banal, what's the banal period? Yeah, well, I, you know, correct me again if I'm wrong, but in, in my mind, I guess it's somewhere between about 1950 and 1975, 1980. Well, I mean, there's all that great architecture. That, I mean, look at all those fantastic modern houses like the Ames house and all the Neutra houses and all the, there, there are a lot of great, Cranbrook, you know, there's, I guess Cranbrook's a little earlier, but there, there are a lot of great modern interiors being made in America and, and there are less and less houses that are being made in the classical taste. Um, and the, the ones that are being built kind of look hollow the classical tradition is not regularly practiced, so they generally look they look they don't look as good. Um, so I think there's some major decorative monuments in that period, um, but the low end taste, not low end, but the popular taste, because I guess there's so much of it. How, you know, how many avocado green appliances can you look at or um, <laughs> macrame plant hangers or um, all that stuff's having a revival because the p- people didn't grow up with it. It looks kind of interesting and fresh. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen any avocado green appliances yet. But, um, God, that's a hard question. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't think we really know yet. Mm. But 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 the, I mean, there's a a lot of '70s furniture is being is popular. I mean, the, the whole phenomenon of Palm Springs. Look, look at Palm Springs. How popular that is, and all that stuff is basically the dates we're talking about from the after the Second War to the present, and it's full of modern houses with, you know, there's virtually no antiques in Palm Springs, and and look how applauded that is. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. And you know there are some people that are sophisticated in posturing that do have some old things mixed in with their modern furniture, but I would say that's five percent or ten percent. Not, you know, it's a resort, and people tend to not want to have serious things in those houses. Mm-hmm. 
I just want to take a minute to say thank you for listening. I appreciate all your support. And if you want to help support the podcast, the easiest way is to leave a review or a rating uh, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. It just takes a second, and it really helps us to get the word out to new listeners. If you have comments or suggestions or ideas for new episodes and want to get in touch, um, you can reach me on Instagram at Objective Interest or uh, on email at CuriousObjectsPodcast at gmail.com. Hope to hear from you soon. And don't forget to stay tuned after today's episode to hear an excerpt from The Object Podcast. This program is supported by The Object, the award-winning podcast from the Minneapolis Institute of Art, stories of art and artists throughout history told with style and wit. Discover the show that critics are calling a must-listen, and listeners are calling playful, thoughtful, and absolutely fascinating. From the cult of Frida Kahlo to the mystery of a lost Rembrandt, it's the museum as you've never heard it before. You can hear new episodes of The Object every month. This episode is sponsored by the Decorative Arts Trust, a nonprofit organization that promotes and fosters the appreciation and study of the arts through partnerships, programs, and grants in support of graduate students and young professionals. For information about upcoming virtual events, including tours of Sabine Hall and Castle Hill, and in-person programs, including a symposium in Salem and the North Shore of Massachusetts, visit decorativeartstrust.org or follow the Trust on Facebook and Instagram. Their Instagram handle is at Decorative Arts Trust. So let's let's take another seemingly dominant trend, um, which comes in, in the years following that period with the uh, arrival of mid-century modernism in America, which, you know, I mean, it... it really dominates the design world for a very long time, um, arguably up to the present. I mean, you mentioned design within reach, certainly. The uh, IKEA aesthetic um, is highly prevalent. I mean, why is that? Why has mid-century modernism, even if you could argue maybe that it's starting to lose some purchase now, but um, it's been well over a generation now that um, uh, mid-century modernism has sort of uh, taken the um, the leading role in popular American conceptions of interiors is is that just because it fits easily into it, like a white cube it, apartment a, or I think it's good to compare collecting reproduction Georgian furniture to make a house and collecting modern furniture to make a house. I think it was appealing. Both were appealing to people because they knew if they bought the formula, they'd have a good-looking house. Mm. And and so, you know, I, I know countless people who you know picked out all their furniture at, from the Williamsburg Craft House catalog, and 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 then bought it all, and their houses look good. And the same was with modern furniture. You know, you picked out the modern stuff you wanted, and it all went together, and you got a pleasing interior. So I think that is, I think the formula, a successful formula for, you know, having a decent looking house are both, are both those t- styles. That's interesting. Um, so you're, you're think, saying it has a lot to do with just uh, sort of ease, the ability for a normal person to create a good looking interior without too much uh, work. Right. Well, it's fraught too, because, you know, people... We're, we're not trained artistically like we once were, so 
middle class, we, we're, you know, you don't, you're not tra trained to make aesthetic decisions or, um, you know, you know, we rarely teach art in school right now. You, know, you don't learn to mix colors or paint or arrange things or make things. So you're, you know, you start to furnish your house, you're really at ground zero about how to do it. And, and especially if your parents were hippies, they, they probably didn't have <laughs> decorated houses. So, you know, you you do reach for some sort of formula that you're guaranteed some sort of success at. Um, and I do think modern, you know, going and buying a collecting modern furniture from retail sources, you can make a pretty decent looking house. Will it, will it reflect your, really reflect your personality or be individual? No, but it it, it will it will look good. That, I think that's where we, we differ. Like, I always design a house so it functions, it, making sure that they're all the right pieces of furniture and de furnishings are, are present in the in the floor plan so it works. And then it's a choice of what, what goes in those places. And I always try to have some things that are old and some things that are new. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's a, it's like creating a collage or a sculpture that objects have to interplay with each other and look good. Um, and this goes back to one of the classic combinations that we all have seen is the pair of Barcelona chairs by Mies van der Rohe and a Chinese cabinet. Um, that that's just such a classic example of old and new that we all know. And, and, and in, a, in a way, that's what we do every day is not 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 so much the exact thing, but the idea of combining a modern thing with an old thing for pleasing effect. And also I do feel like antiques give you a lot more value in terms of decoration and quality than most new modern furniture. Uh -huh. Well, so yeah, I want to talk about this because, you know, it is, it's sort of popular in some circles, at least these days to talk about eclectic style and drawing things from different places and different periods and putting them together. Um, but that, that's not the easiest thing to pull off for us mere mortals um, who aren't professional interior designers. Um, wh whereas you, you know, your rooms, as you say, you often will will uh, bring in pieces that represent different decades, different centuries, different continents. Um, even though, you know, Edith Wharton uh, certainly frowned on that. So, you know, what um, what's your magic for making that work? And what would you say to Edith Wharton if she criticized you for that? Well, I wrote, I wrote my book with um, Ted Luce. Um, he was my co-author, and he decided that she, Edith Wharton was vinegary. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, okay, so let's go back to the history of decoration. If you start in in... Roman times or Greek, if you start in classic times, there's already a mixture of people, you know, adapting things from previous times and generations and using them in their houses. And by the 18th century, people are collecting antiquities to use as decoration. And that, and, and so there's always this play of old and new in interiors. And when we get to the present, I find that there, there's always the, the best decoration is ancient and modern or old and new things, and and that comes from, you know, historic tradition. Now, 
Edith Wharton. Yeah, she wasn't. She didn't say that all the furniture had to be one style, but she said it had to harmonize. I, I do think that. Um, yeah, I never really read her. I never read Wharton as being. It all had to be French or all had to be English, but I think she she wanted it all to be classical. Mm -hmm. She eschewed the Rococo and the Victorian. So that did get you down to neoclassicism and all of its forms. Um, but But for us, we have a broader... That's a big question. I think today, this is one of the things that I find really important. I wrote about this a couple of times when I wrote the book on influential American interiors and then in my own book, in my monograph, and then about, and to a certain degree, in classical principles, and that is what is American decoration? And that was a big question. In fact, I asked Wendell, Garrett, you know, the longtime editor of Antiques, and what is American decoration? And we had this long philosophical conversation about it, and it turns out that American decoration is a, a set of things, but it's not defined. It's um, comfort, it's um, functionality, it's um, simplest, sim oftentimes the simple use of materials in an artistic way. Um, and the other thing we hit upon is in American decoration, you, you can pretty much decorate your house any way you want to, and no one will criticize you <laughs> because we, we, that is what I call democratic decoration, meaning that there's no internet, there's no national standard on how your house should look. And that allows for a lot of invention and, and personal expression. And that's what allows us to use modern furniture antique furniture or a combination of modern furniture, we, we pretty much have carte blanche about, you know, how we mix it up. And, and that's, that's what's genius about American decor. And I think that's what we've really run with at Jane Design Studio is the idea that you can pretty much have whatever you want. And, and it's how you arrange it to look handsome and beautiful. Mm. And what looks handsome and beautiful is to what, you know, suits your eye. And in fact, yeah. with the, in this, houses have become more and more private. So, the only people that really see them are, are the people who live there. Um, having parties at home, at least in New York, and uh, has become rare and rarer. Um, and so they're, they're, they're even more personal for that reason. You have no exterior expectations. Um, mm. and, and that's liberating in some ways. And also causes people not to decorate because they, there's really no value or return for it. Um, how it all sorts out after um, this pandemic, and I think people might entertain more at home than before, and therefore they all need to redecorate. That was a little joke. Oh well, I certainly feel that way. Um, I mean, I I have had small gatherings and look forward at some point in the I hope not too distant future to having larger gatherings, and um, I'm certainly feeling motivated to rethink the space that I live in for, for my guests' benefit, but also for mine. Yes. Um, and actually, you know, I wanted to ask, um, b 
but before I let you go, if you could give me some practical advice, which who knows might be helpful to uh, other listeners as well. Um, but you know, I'm I'm in my 30s and I live in a, a small rental apartment in Brooklyn, um, and I care about the space that I live in, and I, you know I want it to be comfortable and I want it to look good. Um, but of course, you know there are serious limits both to what I can afford and also um, what I can justify investing into a place that uh, who knows how long I'll even live here. Right. Um, so what do you think I should be prioritizing in terms of, you know, the objects that I'm investing in that I want to live with here? Well, I mean, there's this classic taste. The, um, the traditional or classic advice for people who are younger and setting up household is you know, once you have your basic needs met, that each purchase or each addition be something you really love and is of good quality. And that is the path. And if you buy things you really like and that are 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 well made, they'll 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 help you furnish your the house you're in and then eventually you know a, a larger house should you acquire one. Um but there's there's been a trend to just go buy whole sets, you know, whole like go to go to Crate and Barrel or go to some retail source and just buy the whole kit and then throw it out in five years, um, which of course is horrible for the environment and is is a terrible investment because you spent this large amount of money on stuff that you're only going to get five years use out of. So, yeah, really, if you can get to the point of buying things that will last your whole life. Um, you're you're ahead of the game, um, and so that's my general advice: is to buy things you love and buy the best quality, and and rather than buy a lot, have you know go slow, and and acquire things that are great. And it's pretty easy to buy beautiful things right now because the antiques market is is really a buyer's market. You you, you can get really really nice things for. Very little money. We buy countless objects now in the office that are under five hundred dollars that are really nice. So it's an exciting time if you're interested in old things to acquire them because you can buy the best quality for for not not much money. And if you are okay with some minor imperfection to get a beautiful object, you're even even better off in terms of collecting. So I I always just try to. Um, encourage people to buy the best they can afford and maybe not buy as much as long as you have a place to sit and you know you have a dining table and chairs and a bed and maybe a comfortable place to sit then then from then on you know it's additive uh, everything else is gravy well yeah and it, it's, it's it's like collecting decorative arts and paintings that are the same you know you buy something you love with the best quality and it and it, it, it grows and stays with you. Now, that's my general advice. But the other the other thing is is to give yourself the freedom of changing your mind. You know, you don't have to like love everything you mm-hmm. buy in your twenties when you're in your thirties. And you're bound to make make some mistakes. And that's okay. And that's how your taste changes and matures. Um so don't be freaked out like that you're buying something you have to live with for the rest of your life, but generally have buy things with an eye to the rest of your life, but 
also say, oh, well, you know, I outgrew um, some specific taste that, that, and, and, and you can move on. There's impunity in that. Um, so I can get rid of my crate and barrel dining table. You have a crate and barrel dining table? I'm afraid so. But look at it. Does it look good? Does it work? There's no crime in that. You know, I, I thought it did about eight years ago. Not so much anymore. Well, then that that that, that you got your you got you got your use out of it, and maybe you can get an 18th century one very soon. You could, you know, for the price <laughs> of it, you can buy. I, no, I I know, I know. You can buy an 18th century dining table for the same price as the table at Crate and Barrel, which is crazy. But Absolutely, it's. Well, when I bought this, I guess it was more like 10 years ago, I hadn't um, been introduced to the wonderful world of antiques. So I didn't realize what a terrible uh, opportunity I was wasting. But, but also, I, I work for an old line decorator named Albert Hadley, and we bought things everywhere. You, 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 Crate and Barrel is a, a great and reliable source, sometimes restoration of hardware, certainly designed within reach. Those are all good things. It, it, it's just how you put them into a mix. That that is what's telling, um, and it's just like it's a lot like something like fashion, where you know you can go in and buy the whole outfit, or you can buy parts of the outfit and combine it to make it your own your own your own taste. It's it's somewhat analogous to that, um, and you know all the advice literature about all the advice now about fashion is to buy a few good pieces and save the environment and don't buy. You know, countless cheap T-shirts, um, and I think furniture follows that that model too. And well, you're speaking my language, um, and I, I really appreciate that advice. And uh, I I hope our listeners will find that helpful. I, you know, I I the decoration of houses is really hard to read because it's so dense, but I encourage everyone to have a copy of it and read the chapters individually and backwards and forwards and you can use my book as a concordance if you want but that i think if you if you take that on you um you'll have a really nice understanding of traditional decoration and design that that will inform you know all your design decisions for really your lifetime um because it's a point of reference it's not that everything in there is what you want to do but at least you have it as a baseline it's like any advice you know, you, you, you know, or any advice for vocabulary. You learn the vocabulary, you learn the advice, and then you, you play it against your own life and what works for you. And, and I think that's really what I'm, a summary of what I think is that, you know, we know the rules, we know all about classicism, we know about historic decoration, but we make contemporary rooms for modern people. And, and that means sometimes doing things differently, but, we know what it's based on. And, and that's what I think makes um, the best decoration for today. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Um, Thomas Jane, thank you so much. Thank you. It was fun. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening. Now stick around to hear a snippet of the Object podcast. You can find the full episode on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. On the 13th of December in 1815, the Emperor of the Austrian Empire floats across Venice, standing on a seashell. 
naked, except for a robe he's holding rather loosely over his body. As though someone in the crowd has thrown it to him. Like, dude, put this on. His name is Francis I, and he has four gilded bronze horses with him, which he will take to the Basilica of St. Mark's, the ancient church with the bell tower and pigeons, where the horses still are today, one of the most famous symbols of Venice. And then, presumably, Francis would ascend to heaven on his nautical chariot. Look what I did, you mortals. Well, that's how the scene is depicted anyway, in an engraving from the time. What really happens, if you want to be all factual about it, is that the four bronze horses arrive on a raft, pulled around the east end of Venice. And when they come to the little plaza by the Basilica of St. Mark's, they're unloaded and pulled through ranks of soldiers toward the church, and the soldiers haul them atop the balcony, a loggia over the entrance to the sound of gun salutes and cannon fire. It's a big deal because the horses had been taken by Napoleon 18 years earlier in 1797. And now, with the dictator's defeat, the symbols of Venice have come back. No thanks, really, to Francis. But whatever. Over the next few decades... Tourists come to see the horses, and artists paint them, and they become, like so much of Venice, something that seems to have always been there. Until, in the 1870s, Charles Carl Coleman, an American, decides to paint a picture of them. Coleman goes up to the balcony and paints not just the four bronze horses, but the balcony itself. And in his picture, he puts some chunks of decorative marble and bits of broken columns of one ancient origin or another lying around the balcony. And he shows how the columns supporting the horse's feet are each a little different, taken from here and there. As if to say, these horses, like himself, are not from around here. And he's right. Today's episode was edited and produced by Sammy Delati. Our music is by Trap Rabbit, and I'm Ben Miller. <laughs> <laughs>